Good morning. Let's start this morning with a little quiz, a cinematic test. I don't want you to say the answer immediately, but we're going to put up on the screen a famous quote from an old movie. And I want you to ask yourself two questions. One, do you know what movie the quote comes from? And two, do you remember what it refers to? Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. Do you remember that one? I'm sure you do. Most of us do. It's from The Wizard of Oz, of course. Right when Dorothy and her companions, the Scarecrow, the Tin Woodman, and the Cowardly Lion, are quivering with fear in the presence of the great and powerful Oz. You remember the giant head and the flames leaping up in front of it. Well, at that very moment, Toto is not the least bit impressed or awed, and he lurks around behind the scenes and pulls open a curtain, and suddenly we all discover that the great and powerful Oz is nothing more than a carnival magician from Nebraska. A nice man, but a rather poor wizard. And so it turns out that what appeared initially as something quite overwhelming was in fact, in reality, quite ordinary. Now I open with that illustration because I want us to consider this question. What if the opposite of that were true? What if behind the ordinary, the everyday, the things we see in our lives with each day, what if there was something quite overwhelmingly awesome, but we don't see it? What if as we go about the activities of our daily lives, consumed by the mundane, by our worries, our concerns, our fears, there was in fact something huge and amazing, a greater reality, a grander drama. And then consider this, what if we could actually see that? And what if in seeing it we would stand in awe? What if we would say, wow, or aha, or so that's what it's really all about? Well, that picture and that question is, in fact, a very good introduction to what Jesus, in the book of Revelation, is revealing. Jesus is pulling back the curtain so we can see beyond the ordinary past our fears, past our worries, past our uncertainties, to God's much greater, much more overwhelming reality. And in fact, it's in chapter 4, where we find ourselves today, that the curtain is pulled back. And John is invited to come and see. And we have the privilege of accompanying him. Now, we've seen in past weeks that in chapter 1 of the book of Revelation, we are introduced to the star of the show, who is, of course, Jesus in all of his glory. In chapters 2 and 3, Steve shared with us how those contain Jesus' letters to seven churches in Asia Minor, each of which was struggling in some fashion. Some were poor and persecuted, and they needed encouragement. 
Some actually thought they had everything together and didn't realize that they were spiritually dying. Some of them were tolerating immorality in their midst or false teachers, and they needed to be challenged to repent. Each church receives a particular message appropriate to it. But the interesting thing is each message ends in exactly the same way. At the end of each one, Jesus says to them, He who overcomes, who is victorious, who is faithful to the end, will receive my reward. Now, if I were those churches then, or if I were hearing this message today even, I would think, well, yes, Jesus, that's all well and good to overcome, to be victorious. But being victorious, overcoming, staying faithful to the end is hard work. Life is full of temptations and frustrations and worries and difficulties. It is tough to overcome. And Jesus would agree because he went through all that himself and overcame. But Jesus knows that we need just a little bit more than just his words of encouragement. We need eyes that will see the world differently. And so, let's look at Revelation chapter 4. As Jesus pulls back the curtain, and we walk with John through the door onto an amazing scene. Revelation 4. We're going to read the whole chapter. It's not very long. After this I looked, John says, and there before me was a door standing open into heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here. And I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit. And there before me was a throne in heaven. And someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of a a jasper or a ruby. A rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a a sea of glass, clear as crystal, In the center, around the throne, were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man. And the fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night they never cease saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne They worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and 
honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Wow, a chapter full of strange images, at least to us. But actually for the Apostle John, and even for his first readers of these words, those images wouldn't have been so bizarre. All of them are found in the Old Testament. In fact, some have said that if you're really going to understand the book of Revelation, you need to immerse yourself in the Old Testament because so many of the symbols and images in the book actually are first seen there. In the Old Testament, Moses, Daniel, Ezekiel, and Isaiah all had visions and experiences with God that reflected part of what we see here in this chapter. So let's go through and briefly look at some of the things we find here. Now we begin first with the first thing John sees, a door. Now if you're reading this passage of scripture in an older translation like the King James Version, it actually says, I looked and behold, a door. Now the NIV doesn't include that word, I think probably presuming that we don't use the word behold very much nowadays. But there is a word that we use in colloquial English that would fit really well here. And it would sound something like, and then I looked and whoa, a door. Or maybe if John was something younger than the 90-year-old we presume him to be at this point, he might have said, after this I looked and, whoa, dude, a door. It's a word that expresses surprise. And before John has even time to think about what this means, a door into heaven, he is whisked into the very throne room of God. And then the next thing he sees, I looked and, whoa, that same word again, a throne. And the throne is really important in the book of Revelation. In fact, the word throne occurs 62 times in the New Testament, and 47 of those are in the book of Revelation. The throne is pretty significant here. And then he sees these 24 elders on 24 thrones of their own around the throne. Now, numbers, as we've heard, are really important in the book of Revelation. They symbolize things, and 12 and its multiples are important. 12 is the number of the tribes of Israel, as you probably remember, and the number of the apostles of Jesus. So 24 probably represents the whole people of God. Now, some speculate that these 24 elders are, in fact, the people of God in some representative form. Others, that they are angelic beings. We find in chapter 5, later on, that these elders each hold a golden bowl full of incense, which we're told are the people of God, the prayers of the people of God. And so I think it's probably safe to say that these 24 represent, all, in some fashion or another, all of God's people. And then from out of the throne, there are flashes of lightning and rumbles of thunder. We find that also in the Old Testament. When God's people were gathered at the foot of Mount Sinai and the presence of God came down on the mountain and Moses went up to receive the law from God, we find there also thunder and lightning and peals of booming noise that came from the mountain. So much so that God's people were petrified to get anywhere close to the mountain. They were perfectly happy to let Moses go up and do the talking for them. 
And then there are the seven blazing lamps. And as we're told in chapter 1, those represent the seven spirits of God, which is a little confusing because it, everywhere else in the Bible it seems like there's only one spirit of God. If you look in an NIV footnote, it says that another way of translating that might be the sevenfold spirit of God. And that's probably a pretty good representation of what it really means. Seven in the scriptures, and especially in Revelation, is a book of completeness, of perfection. And so what it's really saying is that the Spirit of God is complete and perfect for every task. And then there's this great crystal expanse, some, something like glass before the throne. And we're not even going to talk about that. So many people have different ideas what that really means, but it had to have been pretty impressive. And then we encounter these four living creatures with six wings covered with eyes, and they are really bizarre looking. We're actually, we actually see something like them in the book of Ezekiel when God appears to the prophet Ezekiel in the Old Testament. And we're told there that these creatures, or creatures something like them, are cherubs or cherubim. I don't know about you, but when I hear the word cherub, I think of the chubby little winged naked guy on the front of a Valentine card. I suppose if this is what a cherub really looks like, if we were to put that on our Valentine cards, they would convey an entirely different message. But they also communicate something important. In fact, uh, in, the, in the tradition of the Old Testament, the lion, the face of the one, was regarded as the greatest, the strongest of the wild animals. The ox as the greatest of the domestic animals. The eagle as the greatest and strongest of the birds. And of course, man as the crown of creation. So these four cherubim that surround the throne of God somehow represent the entirety of all of the created order worshiping the creator. All of creation is there. The combined people of God, all of the created order worshiping God by, 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 nature, by nature of who he is. But then of all the things that John describes here, I've actually skipped over the very first one because there are so many things he describes in great detail. And then there's one that he can't really find the words for that is so overwhelming he can only hint at what it looks like. And that is the one seated on the throne. In fact, the, the, the gemstones that are mentioned there, we're not even sure exactly what they are. The one translated jasper, some suggest perhaps that was a diamond. And it's almost as if John is saying he looked sort of, almost kind of like these gems in all of their blaze and glory. The Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 16, that God dwells in unapproachable light. And that no one has seen or can see him. So I suppose in some way that is what John is trying to communicate here. Now whatever all of these symbols mean, and not everybody agrees on all of them, I want you to just imagine seeing it. Just imagine you are there with John and you are whisked away under the power of the Spirit of God into the very throne room of God Almighty. 
You hear this thunder. You see this blazing glory. The flames of the Spirit in front of the throne. You see all of this light and glory reflected in that crystal expanse before the throne. You see the elders and these bizarre living creatures circling the throne and worshiping God perpetually over and over and over again. How overwhelming that would be. And yet the amazing thing is, is that this is only the beginning. This is just the overture, if you will, to the symphony of praise that is yet to come in this vision of God's awesome grandeur that is revealed in the book of Revelation. And at the center of it all is God and his worship. Now, according to the way some folk look at the book of Revelation as some kind of prophetic timetable, uh, the first question about this passage of Scripture might be, well, when is all this taking place? I mean, this thing that John saw, this scene, did that happen then when he saw it? Did it happen later? Is it supposed to happen at some point in the future? And I think as Steve pointed out in the very first message in this series, that is precisely the wrong question to begin with in examining the book of Revelation because it wasn't given to us to give us a timetable for the end times. This vision that John saw and reported has been given to us to encourage us and to show us how to live. And so the most important question is not when but what And I think if we look at this from the perspective of a timetable, this vision John sees here is actually timeless. It's not that God was on his throne back then when John saw it, but isn't now, or that he is now, but he won't be in the future, or that he will be at some point in the future. This vision of God is forever. He is always on the throne. It is timeless. And God is the center of it all. And I think that is the most important message of this chapter 4, of this vision that John sees, is that God is the foundation of everything that is going to be communicated to John in this vision. Whether we talk about end times or antichrists or beasts or any of these other things that are yet to come, the most important thing for John and those early Christians and for us today to recognize is that the center of it all, the foundation, is God. And I think there are about three things that I want us to latch hold on here in this passage of Scripture about God as the foundation that are, that are really crucial for us to understand as we move forward in the book of Revelation. The first thing is that God is sovereign. I told you how often the word throne is mentioned in the book of Revelation. And most of the time that throne is the throne of God. He is in charge. There is no other. There is none greater. He is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. And there's a wonderful term there in that phrase that the four living creatures echo. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And that word almighty, I'll give you a very brief Greek lesson today just because I think this word is exceptionally cool. The word for almighty there is pantocrator. It just sounds imposing when you say it, pantocrator. Or we might translate it or transliterate it into English nowadays as pantocrat. Now to explain what that means, think for a moment. You've all, we've all heard the term democrat. Democracy is theoretically the rule of the people. We've all heard the word bureaucrat. A bureaucrat is an office 
that rules. Now, the Roman emperors, who figure very predominantly in the background to this book of Revelation, the Roman emperors called themselves autocrats, which means one who rules by himself, no one else with him. Well, this term pantocrat, pantocrator, is used in the scriptures to refer exclusively to God. And it means that he is the ruler of all and everything, and there is none above him. Powerful word. And then we read in the, in the worship that is given to the Almighty by the 24 elders that he created all things. And then at the end of that passage, it seems to repeat itself. It says, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. It almost seems to be saying the same thing twice. But actually, what the elders are saying is something more than that. When they say, by your will all things were created, what they're saying is, by your design, by your purpose, by your plan. As we will see as we progress through the book of Revelation, God indeed has a plan and a purpose that overarches everything. Now that doesn't mean that God created evil. Does it mean that God necessarily causes evil, bad things to happen? But it does mean that God's plan is big enough to encompass it all and to deal with it all. What does it mean for us to recognize that God is sovereign, the all-powerful, all-seeing, knowing Lord who has a plan for everything? Well, first of all, I think it means that Caesar is not. At least that was the most important lesson for these early Christians. No matter what Caesar forced on people or tried to force on people in claiming that he was Lord, he is not. Or whatever else, whatever force or authority or insurmountable problem may burden us, may touch on our lives today, it is not Lord. God is Lord. Secondly, I think the fact that God is sovereign means, thankfully, that I am not. I do not have to fret about making it all turn out okay. The outcome is in God's loving, capable hands. I do not have to build the kingdom of God myself. That is in God's hands. I do not have to handle judgment and vengeance. I don't have to worry about changing people's hearts. That is in God's hands. What I do have to do, in the words of the old hymn, is I simply need to trust and obey and leave the rest up to God. And finally, I think it means that there is nothing that surprises God. He sees it all. And that doesn't mean just that he observes it all. In the Old Testament, God says to Moses at the burning bush, he says, I have seen the suffering of my people Israel. That doesn't mean he just looks on it, he views it. It means he cares. And God who is sovereign, who sees all, who knows all, who has a plan for all, He cares, and he will take care of it. Well, the second thing, besides his sovereignty, I think this passage of Scripture emphasizes God's holiness. His holiness. The the four living creatures say it over and over and over again. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, 
Now, that's a very churchy sort of word that we use a lot and yet may not quite always understand what it really means. And, and when it refers to God, the word holy means that he is set apart, separate from all that is evil, unclean, impure, wrong, bad. He is good. He is absolutely pure and righteous. Now that is wonderful news, but it can also be a scary thing. Because if I recognize that God is holy, He is absolutely 100% perfectly pure and righteous, and then I realize that I am not, whoa, that could be very frightening. You know, when the prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, had a vision of God similar to the one John experiences here in Revelation, his first reaction was to cry out, Woe is me! I am ruined! For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Isaiah recognized that... uh, to be in the presence of a holy, pure, and perfect Almighty God was not necessarily a comforting thing when you see your own sin. But in that very same passage, immediately following Isaiah's declaration, we go on to read that one of the angelic beings in that vision grabbed a coal from the altar before God, touched Isaiah's mouth, and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. And your sin is atoned for. And praise God, as we face a holy and pure and perfect God, we in Jesus Christ can say that very same thing. Our sins have been taken away. Our guilt has been atoned for. All paid by the sacrifice of the perfect Son of God. So God is sovereign. God is good. God is holy. And the final thing I think we see about God emphasized here in this vision is that God is eternal. He is forever and ever and ever. That is echoed in the worship of the 24 elders and the four living creatures. How different does it make our perspective on life and all of the things we go through in this world trials, the temptations, disease, suffering, hardship, how different does it make it when we look at all of that in the scale of eternity? It helps. It makes a huge difference when we see all of that in the scale of God, who is eternal, who is sovereign, and who is wholly good and loves us so much. One thing we see about the book of Revelation is that it is a book full of worship. There are two short worship songs in this passage, and as we go through the book, the book will be punctuated, yes, with all these visions of strange and odd and almost indecipherable things, but at very crucial points we will find these songs of worship. And the songs of worship highlight very important ideas in the book. And I think what we see here is God is the center of it all. And no matter what else will follow, no matter what else we will face, no matter what else will unfold in the lives of these early Christians or in our lives today, the foundation is that he is sovereign. 
Well, here we stand at the end of chapter 4, and I can assure you that much greater things are about to unfold in chapter 5. But Jesus has a door open into heaven before us, and we are invited to come in and to see the world differently in light of God as the sovereign, holy, eternal Lord who is truly in charge of it all.